please turn your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. As you turn there, just again, an encouragement to uh, come out this afternoon after the service here for some food, fellowship, and, and celebrating the Lord and things that He's done uh, in our community of faith. It's going to be an exciting time for our, our groundbreaking ceremony. Love to see you out there uh, after church for the, the lunch and then the groundbreaking ceremony. I believe that begins at 2. All the information's in your, your bulletin. Well, we're in First John 2, and by the way, if, if you don't have a, a Bible, I think our ushers and people inside, you can just raise your hand and, and someone can give you one, or uh, get to know the person next to you. They would love to share their Bible, or download an app. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do here um, as, you, as we read God's Word together. We're in First John uh, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 28 through verse 3 of chapter 3. And so if you're able to, if you'd please stand with me as we read God's Word together. First John Uh, Chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the work you're doing in us. We thank you that we were able to to worship together this morning as a a body, your body, the body of your son Jesus. And we thank you that who we are now is is not yet who we will be. You're still at work in us. Even as you're at work in us, people who are not as we ought to be, even as you're at work in us, you're also at work through us in ways that we, we cannot comprehend. You've been at work through the ministry at Bethany Community Church since we began, and we have the opportunity this afternoon to continue to recognize your work and anticipate future ministry, if that's your plan for us. And we presume upon nothing except that you will continue to be who you are. You will continue to be gracious, you will continue to be loving, and that you will continue to have the joy of worshiping you. We love you, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me that Jesus Christ were to suddenly appear. Those Whatever that was, we just heard that was actually some sort of alarm announcing us that, that Jesus Christ was returning and, and he were to suddenly appear before us in, in all his glory. Uh, what would you say after you had regained consciousness? Uh, what, would you, what would you feel as you were brought back to awareness? Imagine, you know, the, the veil that it covers our eyes, it doesn't allow us to see both the spiritual and the physical world, that, that's removed and we're able to see reality and, 
and, and we see Jesus Christ physically return, and, and we're able to, to see that and, and comprehend that. And what would you be thinking? I, I mean, this is the one of whom it is sung in, in Revelation chapter 4 as, as the elders fall down before Jesus and the others and the living creatures, and, and they say, Worthy are you, they're, they're saying this to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a, a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. This is the one of whom him and, and to the Father it said to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's the one who appears before you right now. Boom, there he is. What do you say? What do you feel? There are times where I would say the thought of Christ returning fills me with with dread. Not like the holy, good kind of dread. A sense of, of shame. John lays out two options here in, in 1 John 2. You can either have confidence or you can have shame. And what are you going to have, John is saying. And there have been times where I would say, you know what, I think, I, I just, I feel shame right now. Maybe that's true for you as well. Maybe you think about Jesus Christ returning and you say, well, because of, of who I have been associated with, the idea of Christ returning, shame. Or because of things that have been done to me, shame. The idea of standing before Jesus and him looking at me, and, and unlike everyone else around me, he would know exactly what has been done to me, and, and he'd be able to see within the depths of my soul. He would know what's happened to me in my life. And the idea of being able, you know, having to stand before him who knows all things, I can't imagine doing that. Or maybe you think about the things that you have done. And there are things that you have done in your life that no one else knows about. There are thoughts that you have had that have been hidden from every soul that you have ever encountered. No one knows those thoughts. In fact, there are thoughts that you've had that you have forgotten about. There are things that you have, you have suppressed deep down, sins, thoughts, actions. And the idea of appearing before the one who knows all things that you have thought and, and said and done, things you haven't done that you were supposed to, who knows every deviation from the perfect character of God that you have, you have committed, the idea of standing before him fills you with shame. Let me suggest to you, that is not the biblical response that God desires you to have as you think about his return. What I want to have happen this morning as we go through this passage is I want us to see what God says to us through John about confidence that we can have as we think about Christ's return. 
And by the end of our time this morning, looking at 1 John, I hope you would say with me, in Christ, not in myself, but in Christ, I will boldly approach him when he returns by God's grace. In Christ, I will boldly and confidently approach him when he returns. Here's what I want us to do to get to that point. I want us to, to first look at verse 28 here of 1 John chapter 2. Let's look at 1 John 2, 28, and we're going to see kind of this goal laid out before us and kind of two options that are present and, and what our goal should be. And then once we all say, yeah, that's, that's the goal that we have, then I want us to look at the rest of the passage through verse 3 of chapter 3, and I want us to see some, some words of encouragement that God has for us, okay? So let's, let's first look at verse 28, and, and here's the goal that's laid out. And now, little children, says John, again, this, this term of endearment he has for these people to whom he's writing, who he, he loves so dearly. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And that word appears refers to this, this sudden appearance. It's what we see in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus is talking about his, his, his second coming, and he, he talks about how the the, after the tribulation, and this is Matthew 24, verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And Concerning, he says later in verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says in verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And whatever you believe about the exact chronology about these these end times, there are things we know for certain. We know that Jesus Christ is physically returning and we know that his ultimate return is at a day and an hour that, that no one knows. And John says, when he appears, when he comes, the desire that we should have would not be that we would shrink away, but that we would have confidence. Do you realize what a ridiculous statement that is? <laughs> John wants you, and I know some of you, to be confident when Jesus comes. That'd be like saying, you know, I enjoy playing basketball and the San Antonio Championship Spurs never invited me out to play basketball with them. I think I'd feel pretty confident. 
You know, I enjoy running. It'd be like saying, you know, this, this world-class marathoner has invited me to go running with him. So I'm tying up my shoes. I'm feeling pretty good about this. That is crazy. <laughs> the idea that, that you and me could stand before him who is supremely righteous and say, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about this. One of my favorite hymns of, of all time is, is And Can It Be? And I love how Charles Wesley begins this hymn describing this, this absurd tension that exists in our relationship with God. He says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me to him who death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. How can it be that the God whom I worship would die for the one who is the worshiper? How can it be that, that I would gain an interest, a, a benefit, in the blood of the, the person whose, whose pain I cause? It's bizarre. And the, the most bizarre part of it is at the end of the, this hymn where it says, No condemnation now I dread. What? <laughs> no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. How can I, with all my, my guilt, and, and no one's arguing that I stand guilty, how in the world, can I, at the end of all this, can I, I stand before my God and approach him with confidence and say, I'm claiming the crown? John says the other option is shame. Some have defined shame this way. They've defined shame as a feeling of deep disgrace and humiliation. The deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something that was done to you or because of something you are associated with. Psalm 610 says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Psalm 97.7, All worshipers of images, all, that is all idolaters, of which I am one, are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. How is it possible? Because we think about these two options, when, when, when we see Jesus Christ, how is it possible that, that I could choose option A, boldness, instead of option B, shame? Here's what John tells us. I, if you noticed, I skipped the beginning of verse 28. Little children, abide in him. John isn't saying, little children, work super hard. So that whenever Christ appears, you can say, I think I got this nailed. I'm feeling pretty good about this. Me, God, the righteous one. No, he says, abide in him. 
there's something about our union with Christ that is going to allow us to be, appear before God so we can say, in Christ, I will boldly approach him when he returns, when I see him. So what's our goal? Our goal is to have the righteousness that we need so that whenever we see Jesus, we won't shrink from him, but approach him with boldness. And how do we achieve that goal? How do we achieve that righteousness? We achieve it in Christ. Let me give you five truths from these verses that I believe you will find immensely comforting this morning. Incredibly encouraging. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. In Christ, God provides us, God provides me with the righteousness that he demands. In Christ, not in myself, but in Christ, God provides us with the righteousness that he demands. In other words, he doesn't just say, well, in Hebrews, he talks about the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, but he didn't say, I require this righteousness, let's see if you can get it. In Christ, God provides us with the righteousness he demands we have. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, that, that phrase, has been born of him, is incredibly important, isn't it? Notice the, the past tense there. He doesn't say uh, everyone who practices righteousness will be born of him. In other words, he's not saying if you practice enough righteousness, ultimately you can say, I've, I've obtained what I need to uh, attain. I've, I've attained righteousness. There's this uh, novel I read in, in high school called Siddhartha, and maybe, maybe you've read it. It's about this, this guy in ancient India who, who tries to achieve enlightenment. And first of all, he has this, this life of, of ease, and then he has a life of, of monasticism, kind of lives this ascetic, basic lifestyle and trying to pursue enlightenment. And then he... I think pursues kind of this, this lifestyle of wealth and then a lifestyle of pleasure. And then, I can't remember all the details, but I think he kind of like sits by a river or something for a long time and, and att- attains enlightenment. And that's kind of the idea that, that other religions often have. Okay, I'm going to pursue this, this path of enlightenment and eventually I'll arrive. But it's also the mentality we sometimes have as Christians. Okay, I'm going to going to begin here, and I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to pursue righteousness so ultimately God will find me acceptable. And even if we say, I I believe the gospel, I believe I'm not found acceptable apart from Christ, and I need his righteousness, there are still things we do that that betray that actually we're we're functioning legalists. We believe that that still, okay, if I just do this the right way, if I just say this the right way, if I just progress in my sanctification enough, then then God will find me acceptable. Then God will say, yeah, I made a right decision in saving her or saving him. But John says, you got the cause and effect wrong here. Imagine if I were to tell you that I believe that daylight causes the sun to appear. You say, well, no, Daniel, I think that's not. Well, think about it. Every time the daylight comes, what do you see? The sun. I think the daylight really likes the sun, and daylight causes the sun to appear. No, it's it's actually the way around. The sun causes daylight. Daylight comes from the sun. The same is true here as we're talking about righteousness. A person doesn't 
practice righteousness to be born of God. John says, when you see righteousness in a person, what does that mean? It means they have been born of God. Something has taken place in the past. God, in his divine grace, allows us to be, he causes us to be born again, and the fruit of that is righteousness. That should be an incredible encouragement to you. As you pursue a lifestyle of righteousness, know this, you are not pursuing a lifestyle of righteousness so that someday maybe God can find you acceptable. Maybe someday you can read your Bible enough and pray at exactly the right time and, and treat everyone exactly the way you're supposed to so that someday God will find you righteous. No, it's the other way around. God gives you a righteousness. And your lifestyle reflects the righteousness that he has already given you. Lawlessness says, I don't need righteousness. Legalism says, I must earn my righteousness. The gospel says, you need righteousness and God provides it through faith in his son, Jesus. Shame comes from our, our failures. God provides his righteousness to, to cover our shame. In Christ, God provides this graciously with the righteousness that he demands that we have. Here's the second thing that I think should be encouraging to you. In Christ, in Christ, God loves us enough to call us his children. It says, verse 1, and, and I think it's hard, it's hard to really capture the sense of, of what John is saying here, but he begins by saying, see what kind of love. In other words, it's, it's like this idea, literally it means uh, from what country did this type of love come from? And it's this idea of, of there's this, this foreign thing, how can we even understand it? What, what kind of love is this? Uh, I, I, it doesn't have an earthly origin. This is just something amazing, John says. See what kind of love the Father has, and, and what kind is it? It's, it's, it's so amazing that, that he has given something to us. And that word given doesn't just mean like, hey, here's something nice and hope you like it. It's, it's to bestow, to, to lavish something upon someone. Behold how, how great this love, this amazing love, what kind of love is it that God has, has not just begrudgingly given but, but lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. There's this unique relationship that God has, has brought us into. We're, we're family we're now called as children. As you think about those of you who are parents, what type of love in terms of sacrifice is greater than the type of love you have for your children? It's hard to imagine a love greater than that. That's the type of love that God has lavished upon us. It's this crazy love that God has lavished upon us to call us his children. And then John, again, I hope you can catch the sense of, of how excited John is about this love. He says, and, and so we are. I mean, this is a crazy thing. God loves us so much that he calls us, he calls us his children, and we actually are his children. It's, it's, it, it boggles the mind. In Christ, God loves us enough to call us his children and for us to be his children. It's, it's, it's amazing. And John, as he writes these words, you, you sense that he is overwhelmed by this idea of God's love for him. John is all about fellowship here in 1 John. All about how you can know you're in fellowship with, with God and with, with other Christians. 
And what I'm about to tell you and say to you and encourage you with, I, I hope you sense my love in saying it and, and the intention behind it. I believe that one of the signs of spiritual health is to be overwhelmed by love. I believe that a sign of spiritual health is to be overwhelmed by the love of God even when imperfectly expressed within the community of faith. Does that make sense? I'll put it in a negative way. I believe a sign of a lack of spiritual health is not to be overwhelmed when you encounter the love of God in the body of Christ. I was talking to, I've encountered several people over the last few months who I've, I've been concerned about because as they talk to me about their church, I don't sense people who are overwhelmed by the love of God as expressed imperfectly among his people even. I was talking to, to one person, I, I said, look, you know, you, you mentioned that you're, you're leaving your church, and, and, and uh, I said, but I, I know this, I, I know how much they've loved you, and I, we kind of talked about all the things that this church had, had did for this, this person, and, and they said, well, I just don't feel loved. I said, boy, that really concerns me. It concerns me for you. I, I don't think you're going to experience the, the joy of the Lord until you're overwhelmed by his love. And conversely, there have been some, some people I know who have been in, in some tough churches, and, and even as they go through these, these times of, 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 of rough spots, I, I, I talk to them, and, and they talk still about how much they, they love the people of God, even as they, they struggle in relationships. And I think, you know what? A sign of a person's spiritual health is to be overwhelmed by the love of God, even when imperfectly expressed. As we think about Christ's return, we should understand this. Look, God loves me enough to call me his child. And as I think about the relationship between a dad and his children, an earthly dad and his earthly children, I know that's a shadow. I, I know that my love for my, my children is, is an imperfect shadow of a perfect father's love for his children. And what child child of mine would I not rejoice in seeing? My confidence as I think about appearing before God is strengthened as I consider this truth. God loves me enough to call me his, his child. Let me, let me show you a little a graphic here, and it, it's, not, um, it's not a great visual here. I apologize for that. But uh, the, these graphs represent the times the word one of, the, one of the words for love appear in the Bible, and each of these graphs represents one of the books of the New Testament. And, and guess which book is on the top of that graph? It's First John. John is pretty pumped about love. He's overwhelmed by it. 
in Christ, in Christ, God loves us enough to call us his children. Here's the third thing I want you to think about. In Christ, in Christ, we are rejected as he was rejected. You can keep your finger there in in 1 John and and turn over to the Gospel of John. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John there in the New Testament. And look at John chapter 15. In John 15, there's some really cool stuff going on here, of course. Uh, John begins by talking, or Jesus begins in John 15, talking about his relationship with those who are his followers, his disciples, and those who are believers. He says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's talking about this, this close relationship that exists between Christ and and his, and his followers, his disciples, it's this, this abiding relationship. And then we see this in verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If, if we were a part of the world, if we abide in the world, if, if we were one of the world, the, the world would identify us as its own and, and love us. And again, we've defined the world in John as this system that is opposed to, to God and his kingdom. But Jesus says, be, because you're identified with me, because you are part of me, the world isn't going to identify with you. The world is going to treat you the same way that it treated me. Remember, he says, in verse 20, the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, when I talk about the world rejecting us, let's be careful, right? There are some times where we as Christians, and, and, and this, is, this is a safe place, we're, you know, we're in church right now, so let's be honest with each other. There, there are some times where we as Christians uh, will act like jerks, and then we're shocked that we're persecuted. <laughs> How dare people treat me that way? I'm a Christian. I'm suffering for Jesus currently. That's not always the case. Peter, in, in 1 Peter, will we'll talk about how we respond rightly to persecution. And he talks about Jesus. And he says, uh, what credit, this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's a very profound truth. As we encounter suffering in the Christian life, this isn't something unexpected or, oh, wow, that's weird, kind of persecution. Who, who saw that coming? It's part of our, our calling. We've been called to endure persecution. It's a fundamental aspect of who we are as believers. When he, was, he committed Christ, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In Christ, we are rejected as he was rejected. And as we go through life and we become more and more like Christ and less and less like the world, that there, there should be this sense of, of encouragement. As, as, we, as, we, as we sense, even in our sins sometimes, we sense this is not who I'm supposed to be. This is not the, the sphere that I desire to reside in. There should be comfort in that. As we think about Christ's work in our lives. Here's a fourth word of encouragement. In Christ, we understand that who we are now is not who we will someday be. And some of you are really bad, so this should be really encouraging to you. Us. In Christ, we understand that who we are now is not who we will someday be. Listen to what John says. This is this is this has been very profound for me to think about this week. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now, we're God's children. And what we will be not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is right now at this moment we're children of God and yet who we are has not yet appeared this this future That's unbelievably encouraging to me. Sometimes, sometimes I'm embarrassed whenever people see some of my work in progress. So, for example, on, on Wednesday nights, I try to send out my notes of where I am in the sermon to uh, people who need my sermon notes, you know, people who are doing the PowerPoint or the bulletin or children's church workers and stuff and i send out the notes and i'm like oh i mean there's i delete stuff before i i i I can't even they can't even see these rough thoughts and but i send it out there's always this kind of this this feeling you know know how that is there's a feeling in your stomach i got i'm a little embarrassed by this i don't want to see this this rough of a stage but i gotta do it or sometimes i'll I'll be i'll be typing something and one of the kids or or whitney or or someone else will walk beside me hey what you're working on like nothing you know you know you don't want to see it at this stage it's rough now. There's like a file on my computer. Of, Please delete this if I die suddenly because this is just stuff. I never want anyone to see. It's just works in progress. And you, you know how that is. As we think about who we are right now, as, as you think about who you are right now, I hope you would say, I'm not who I desire to be. And, and our temptation can be to say, well, I, right now I'm this rough draft 
and I want to get it all together before Christ appears because I don't want him to see me like this. I, I, I need to be here, and right now I'm here, and, and oh, oh, please, Lord, don't return yet. Let me just kind of, you know, it's like someone's coming over to your house. Let me just kind of fix a couple things up, and, and, and then I think we'll be ready for you. It's not the case, right? You don't have enough cleaning supplies in the universe to deal with all the things you need to deal with in your heart before Christ sees them. And you think, well, that's, that's discouraging. You know what, that's just encouraging. How is that encouraging? Because it seems discouraging, and, and, and here's why. Because as you see yourself as God sees you, and you and God agree together, this is not who I was designed to be and who I want to be, and you both agree with that, that should be encouraging because God has said that's true, and, and you're both looking forward to this, this future you. Who you are right now is not the you who you will be. Here's how Scripture describes this elsewhere. 2 Corinthians three sixteen. But when one turns to the Lord, this veil is removed, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As you and I behold the glory of the Lord, there's transformation that's taking place in our lives. Who I am now is not who I will be. That's encouraging. Philippians 3.21 says, Our lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, including me. Romans 6.19, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, no, now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is, a, this is an ongoing process as you continue to present your bodies to Christ. There's this process of sanctification that's taking place. Romans 8.30 describes this, this process. This, it's not this instantaneous event. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's this future glorification that we await. Romans 13.11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Right now, it is 11.30 and 40 seconds now. And you are nearer to salvation at that moment than you were when you first placed your, 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 your faith in Christ. When you first placed your faith in Christ, you're now nearer to salvation and right now, you're nearer than you were 15 seconds ago when I started this idea. The day of salvation is, is ever nearer. And, and what is that? It's encouraging. In fact, let, let, me just, let me just give you this idea from Colossians. Colossians 1 is, is really my my life verse in terms of, of my ministry. Colossians 1 describes the glory of Jesus Christ, and then he says that, as Paul says as he's talking about his ministry and relationship with who Jesus Christ is, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, 
the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so he's saying there's this mystery, and this mystery was was now made known among the Gentiles. And it's the mystery which now is Christ in you. We talked about this abiding in Christ. This is the mystery that's been revealed. And, and what does Paul do with that mystery? He says, I'm, I'm proclaiming it. I'm preaching it with every, every fiber of my being. I'm, I'm toiling to proclaim this mystery to you. And he says, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here, here's the cool thing, brothers and sisters. It, it's, it's future. <laughs> he doesn't say, uh, him I proclaim, and now you're all complete in Christ, and I can call it a day. He says, this is an ongoing deal. Started, there's this cool mystery. We're in Christ. We've been united with Christ, not through our own works, but we've been born again by, by faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace. It, it began. It's awesome. And now, now we're, I'm striving to continue to proclaim him so that I can present every person mature in Christ. It's a future event. And, and what it means is that everyone in this room who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is at a, a different stage in this journey. Some of us are, are here, and, and, and maybe you're a little bit ahead of me in, in some areas. Some of you are way ahead of me in other areas, and maybe I'm ahead of you in some areas. And, and maybe there, there's some of us that are, you know, we're, we're just getting off the starting blocks. But, but the cool thing is, None of us say, hey, you should, you should really be ashamed of where you are. I can't believe you even call yourself a Christian. Shame, shame, shame on you. No, it's grace, grace, grace on you, bestowed upon you, lavished upon you. And wherever we are collectively as, as a body, our goal is that everyone would be presented complete in Christ. And so wherever you are in your, your walk with the Lord, we're all encouraging each other and, and helping each other strive to maturity. And so this reality that right now I find myself someplace I do not wish to be is a good and encouraging thing. If I looked at my life and I said, yep, pretty happy, there'd be a problem. But the fact that I look at my life and I say, no, this is, I'm not complete in Christ. I'm not, not exact in, in terms of where I will someday be in terms of glorification and sanctification. There's, there's future growth. That's a good thing. It's encouraging. Here's a fifth thing that should be encouraging to you. In Christ, we hope in him and we grow in righteousness. Verse 3, he says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, everyone who, who hopes in Jesus for this, this future glorification um, 
purifies himself as, as he's pure. There's, there's a sanctifying process that takes place as we think about the future. Now, how can that be? How can hope produce sanctification? A key thing to remember is that this isn't just hope in general. It's not like, ah, I'm hoping, so feeling pretty good about the future. It's, it's a specific type of hope. In fact, if I don't have righteousness that's, that's a fruit of my hope, I'm hoping in the wrong things, right? Just this past week, I, I found myself in, in Kent's office getting some counseling from him, and, and he you know, confronted me with some, some loving but, but good words about you know, what, what I'm hoping in. What's the what's a fruit? Some, some of the things I was saying revealing that my some of the things that I was saying were revealing that that my hope was not in the right thing. That my perspective on on Christ's work in my life and other people's lives was was not was not affixed rightly upon Christ. Everyone who hopes thus in Him in Christ purifies himself. There's a sanctifying work that takes place. How does that work? In a little bit, many of us are going to be out at the new land. The land's old. There's going to be a new building. There's no building on it yet. There's nothing. That, well, there's some stakes and some tape, but there's no building. So how in the world can, can standing on a place where there's nothing except some stakes and some tape cause us to be excited? What, what's exciting about that? What's exciting is thinking about what's going to be there. And I believe as we stand on the land today and we, we think about what's coming in the future, if, if God allows all this to work out by his grace, there's excitement we're going to feel this afternoon for an event that's not going to take place for a year or so. How can that be? Because thinking about the future brings excitement in the present. If you were going to, to, to receive an inheritance, you, know, you found out that you were the recipient of some long-lost relative's fortune, and you read the will, and you find out some, you know, that there's going to be this money coming to you in a few months, you're not going to have the money, but, but at that moment there's going to be something that, that's taking place within you, this ex- excitement. Well, this is pretty cool. As we think about what's going to take place in the future, there's excitement in the present. In Christ, I hope in Him, by by God's grace, I hope in Christ, and I grow in righteousness as I think about who I'm going to someday be. Okay, I asked you at the beginning. I said, what would you do? What would you, you know, John's talking about here, uh, abide in Him so when He appears, we have confidence and not shrink from Him and shame His coming. I said, what would you do? Here's something pretty cool, I think. A few books later, we get to see how John responds when Christ appears. Look over at Revelation 1. How does John respond when Jesus appears again before him? So John has said, you know, I don't want to shrink from shame, but have confidence. And here's, here's what happens with John. 
says in Revelation 1, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His feet were like a flame of fire. His feet were like, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John, when he sees the glory of Jesus Christ, says, I fell at his feet as though I think that's the first response every single one of us will have. And what's Jesus' response? Does Jesus say, that's, that's right, and, and you grovel and feel shame? What does Jesus say to John? He laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. And on what basis can Jesus tell John, a sinner, not to feel shame? How in the world, by what what right does Jesus say not for John to fear him. Listen to what Jesus says. Fear not. Why? I am the first and last and the living one. I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. As we stand before Jesus Christ as appearing we have no confidence in ourselves. All we deserve is death. All we deserve is eternal judgment before the holiness of the one who was slain. That's all that we deserve in and of ourselves but John says in Christ we have a totally different expectation. In Christ, he can lay his right hand upon us as we fall down as though dead, and he can say, fear not, I've conquered death. That's encouraging. (laughs) In Christ, you and I, by God's grace, will boldly stand before him at his coming. That should encourage you. That should strengthen you. That should bring you joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus, for the the righteousness we have that's, that's foreign to ourselves, but the righteousness we have that allows us to boldly approach the eternal throne, and and claim the crown of life through Christ our own. Cause us, Father, to be molded and, and shaped into your Son's image by your grace. Help us as we think about your Son's coming to have have confidence, a confidence that produces greater righteousness within us by your grace in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.